Well, you can open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. Luke 1. If you, uh, if you think your year this year, 2020, has been unique and a struggle, just think about the year that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, had before John was born. Zechariah was an older man. He and his wife, Elizabeth, had never been able to have children, and I think had probably come to grips with that. They were well beyond the point where their bodies were capable of producing children, and I would imagine it sort of accepted that, probably because they didn't really have any other choice. But Zechariah was a priest, and the way it worked is that priests would have a season where they would be in service in the temple in Jerusalem, and then they would go home after that. And so Zechariah was during one of the times where he was actively uh, participating in the service in the temple, and he was working on his rotation, and suddenly an angel appeared to him while he was in the temple. Unsettling experience, to say the least. This sort of thing didn't happen regularly to the guys that worked there. And the angel started talking to him as he was in great fear and told him that he and his elderly wife were going to have a child and that that child was going to be an Elijah-like figure and was going to prepare the nation of Israel to receive the Lord and that the Lord would return to them. Well, obviously, that's a pretty crazy experience. And to Zechariah, that sounded pretty nuts. And so he was harboring significant doubts as the angel was talking to him that this would happen. And so because of his doubts, the angel tells him, you're going to know that this happens because you're not going to be able to speak when you leave here until after this baby is born. And sure enough, he walks out of the temple after having seen a a vision of an angel and is not able to communicate that to anyone. Can't speak. And that continues. Well, sure enough, after he gets home, his elderly wife is pregnant, and soon their much younger relative, Mary, shows up, and she is pregnant as well and is still a virgin. And she reports that an angel told her, came to her, and promised that her child would sit on the throne of David. Well, it's obvious to you that God is on the move again. And it's been quite a while, to be honest. I mean, it's been 400 years since there's been any word from the Lord, any miracles, any prophetic, you know, uh, any prophetic word coming to the people of Israel. And the situation is not good for you and your people. I mean, there, there are two really significant realities that as the people of Israel, you cling to. One is the temple. And the temple was destroyed 600 years earlier, and it was rebuilt, but the the presence of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, never came back into the temple after it was rebuilt. And the other significant reality, the promise that you have as the people of Israel, is the land that was promised to you. And right now, while Zechariah is living, you have a foreign power occupying your land that has been promised to you. The Roman Empire has extended their reach into Israel and they're in possession and ruling over you. And so the situation is not good. It really doesn't seem at present like God is actively caring for his people. 
And yet, all of this is promised. And sure enough, after nine months, Elizabeth gives birth to a beautiful baby boy. And eight days after his birth, according to the law, you take him to have him circumcised. And when you do that, you name him, not what everyone expects, Zachariah or some other family name, but you name him John, as the angel told you to. And when that happens, all of a sudden, you, after all of this time, after this crazy year that you have had, absolutely insane, you are suddenly able to talk again. And after all of this, what's the first thing you're going to do? Well, you probably have tears coming down your face. It's been such a year, and you are so thankful for what the Lord is doing that you burst out into this song of rejoicing and of joy to the Lord for his obvious return and his obvious work among his people. You know God is doing something, and you're going to express that. What's he doing? Well, he is working to fulfill the covenant promises that he's made, and he's going to bring deliverance to you and to your people. And he's going to do it, amazingly enough, through your son, who's going to prepare the way for the Lord to come, who is Mary's son. And so you're going to sing about that. And this morning, we're going to spend the next few minutes studying that song that Zachariah sang after that crazy, crazy year that he had. And this song really centers on those two babies who would be born and who would become two men. And it centers on the way in which their lives are going to bring deliverance and unfold God's plan for the nation of Israel. And so this is the second song of Advent. It's found in Luke 1, beginning in verse 67, all the way through the end of the chapter. We'll be looking through verse 79. But here's what we're going to see in this song, the messenger and the Messiah, the two men who are the center of this song. And we're going to see two people crucial for God's coming deliverance. Two people who are crucial for God's coming deliverance. And the first one of these two men is a powerful and a promised Messiah in verses 60, uh, 67 or 68 through 75. Now I want you to notice as this begins in verse 67 that Zechariah has the same experience as his wife when she recognizes what the Lord is doing. Look at verse 67. And his father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. All right, so go back to chapter 1 and verse 41 when Mary comes to Elizabeth and visits her, look at verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Zechariah has that exact same experience. God is intervening. God is working among his people through his spirit, and he proclaims prophecy here, it says. In verse 67, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. And so what he's doing is he's looking ahead to the future. And he's announcing what God is going to do. Now, in many ways, you could say that this song that we're going to read this morning is explained and unfolded throughout the rest of the book of Luke and through part two of Luke's writings, which is the book of Acts. It's really one story with two volumes. And so you should read the rest of the book of Luke and the book of Acts through this lens, through what Zechariah is expecting God to do among his people. Now, this song has often been called the Benedictus. 
So the one of Mary was called the Magnificat, and this is the Benedictus because the first word in Latin of this song is the word blessed, or blessed be the Lord. And in Latin, of course, that's Benedictus. Clearly, this song, just like Mary's, was meant and is meant to praise the Lord and to honor the Lord and to worship him for what he's going to do. So all of this should be bringing us as well to the point of praise and worship of the Lord. Now, Zechariah is, is going to thank the Lord for his son, John, and for the role that he will play in God's deliverance, but he's not going to get to John immediately. He begins his song by focusing on God's national working, his national deliverance through this promised Messiah. Look at the, the rest of verse 68, or all of verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, right? He identifies him as the, the national God, the God of Israel, Israel, the the Jewish people are his people. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that this is the point in Israel's history where nothing had been happening for 400 years. You often hear those called the silent years, and it's true. No prophetic word. God's presence was not in the temple. It's sort of like having a body with no heart in it. The trappings are there, but but what they really want isn't there. God's presence has never returned to the temple after they were exiled and it was rebuilt. No miracles have happened. Nothing has come from God to the people. The people are under the dominion of a pagan power. And so if you're a Jew and you're living at this time, you are longing for God to show up. You want nothing more than for him to return and for him to act and for him to intervene. That's what you're looking for. And Zechariah here sees God as starting to act through these two men. He's going to visit his people, as he says, and he's going to redeem them. Now, this language that he chooses here of God visiting his people, uh, this is, is not the first time that this language has been used in Scripture. There's actually a long history of Jews using this language of God visiting. And in the Old Testament, when this language is used, it can mean one of two things. It can mean that God visits to judge and to bring judgment on them or on a foreign power, or it can mean that God shows up to show grace and to bless and to deliver them. This is how Joseph uses, this is the language that he uses when he is in Egypt and he's ready to die, and he looks ahead to the time when God will bring his descendants out of Egypt and rescue them from slavery in Egypt. Look at the The passage here in in Genesis 50, verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. That was the expectation and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. It's quite clear here in this passage that to visit means to for God to show up in order to redeem his people. That's exactly what Zechariah is talking about. He says both of those words, to visit and to redeem his people. This is like the second exodus. It's the same sort of redemption that God brings. Now, this is the expectation, visiting and redeeming. But what does this mean? What are we actually talking about here? Is Zechariah talking about a political rescue 
of the, the Jews from the dominion of Rome, from a pagan foreign power? Is he saying redeem much like God politically brought Israel out of slavery to Egypt and into their own land? Or when he says redemption, should we read this as you and I often read this word redeemed and think about his personal deliverance of us in our salvation? Well, I would say here, as you'll see throughout this song, that this means both. I think both aspects of this are worked out in this song and in the New Testament and expected in the future. Zechariah fully expects both to happen, the political and the spiritual. But I would say throughout the book of Luke and Acts that the primary redemption that will be talked about is the spiritual redemption. And you'll see that. I would say it this way, the, the spiritual redemption brings about eventually, in God's timing, the political, the redemption of the nation. Now, Zechariah doesn't know all these details. He doesn't have a, a super insight into what's exactly how this is going to unfold and what's going to happen. But he knows that this redemption, as God visits his people, is going to happen through his Messiah. Look at verse 69. And... He's visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, when you think about a horn on an animal, take maybe an ox or a buffalo. They have horns, and that horn is a weapon that they use. I mean, they fight with that horn and they use it against their enemy. And that's exactly how this image is used in scripture, particularly when it comes to Israel being delivered. And so what Zechariah is expecting here is for God to raise up a powerful Messiah. And that Messiah is going to be like a weapon that is used against Israel's enemies, just as God promised there's a couple passages that flesh this out in the Old Testament, and I want to read those to you. Psalm 132, looking ahead to this, verses 13 through 18. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. And then look how he fleshes out this language of the horn coming. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And so the horn indicates power and will be used by the Lord to defeat the enemies. Another passage you're probably familiar with. Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so this horn comes through the line of David, is a descendant of David and is powerful and is used to defeat the enemy. Now, what I want to do is I want to kind of look at verses 68 with that sort of introduction in verses 68 and 69. I want to show you the logic that Zechariah is unfolding in, in this section, verses 68 through 75. So we've started in this and we've said the first part of this is that God is going to visit and redeem his people. 
And he's going to do that by raising up a powerful horn of salvation, a Messiah who will defeat Israel's enemies. This is in verses 68 and 69. Now, God is going to do this, Zechariah expects, because of his promises to his people. This has been a theme. We saw this last week in Mary's song that she fully expects God to be faithful and to fulfill his promises. And that's exactly what Zechariah expects here as well. He's going to raise up this horn in fulfillment of his promises. Look at the rest of verse 69. It's in the house of his servant David in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And then skip down to verse 72 and 73. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And then he goes on there. So he'll visit and redeem his people through this horn of salvation because of his promises made in the Old Testament, and he will deliver his people by defeating their enemies. Look at verse 71. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, verse 70, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Look back at verse 70, or look down at verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies... So raise up a deliverer based on his promises. That deliverer will defeat their enemies. And then the final part of this, the goal of deliverance is found in verse 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. In the Old Testament, why does God redeem his people? Why does he bring them out of Egypt into the promised land? He does it so that they can serve him. Redemption occurs so that service and worship can happen. The end game of redemption, of deliverance, is worship, is service. Now, what's helpful here is this word to serve in verse 74. This is the same word that is used of priests serving in the temple. It's a word that indicates worship. It's the same word that is used in Exodus 3. God says to Moses, he said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You shall worship him on this mountain. And you see that fulfilled. Israel's entire purpose for existence is to serve the Lord as a kingdom of priests. They were to represent him to the nations. Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, having been redeemed, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So make careful note of this pattern. Redemption has its goal and outcome as service, which means worshiping the Lord. 
You and I are redeemed in order to serve God. And service always means obedience to his commandments. Worship cannot happen unless there is obedience and fidelity to his commandments. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. God places them in the garden and gives them a command. He gives them a task to do and tells them that they are serving him by that. In many ways, they were priests in the garden, worshiping him by obeying his commands. And so you cannot separate worship of the Lord and obedience. One author said this, and I thought this was so helpful. The essence of worship is responsiveness to God's demands. Worship is always responsive. We always read scripture and our hearts respond in praise and adoration to him. But part of that worship is responding in obedience, reading commands, and then acting in obedience to those commands. Now look at verse 75 and notice the specific description of this service. You should serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This includes, this service includes a pure heart, holiness, heart that is free from sin. And it includes outward actions of righteousness. And so what he's saying here is that worship, service to the Lord, involves the total person, every part of you. Worship of the Lord is not just having a happy heart that feels nice about God when you come and you sing on Sunday morning. You raise your hands and you're excited about him. Worship of the Lord certainly includes that, but it is built on and based on and cannot be true worship without a pure heart and right actions. The New Testament describes this worship, this service to the Lord in this way in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a a sacrifice of worship to him, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice in this passage that we have to have our minds transformed by the truth but we're also to present our physical bodies to God. It's it's the total package. It's every part of us. It's your internal motives and your loves and your affections, and it's your bodily actions, your habits, your patterns of living, your disciplines. It's all of that that is an act of worship that we offer as a living sacrifice to God. And so I have to say, I, I get concerned, very concerned, that very many, many Christians do not see the connection between redemption and this service of worship. I mean, it's quite clear in this passage, Zechariah says, this is why you redeem Israel. This is why the church will be redeemed. It's to serve and worship the Lord. And many Christians don't make this connection. They live as if they can just be redeemed but never have it work itself out in the way that they think, in the way that they act. 
They think that they have received redemption from the Lord and that then they can offer their minds and bodies to the world on a consistent basis. And somehow they're still redeemed. They still know him. They still have heaven as their home. When the true and powerful Messiah delivers you from the enemy, he does not allow you to run right back into the enemy's arms. He does not allow you to run right back into slavery. And so this is the end game of deliverance, of redemption. It's that Israel might worship and serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness. And this certainly plays itself out in us as the church. And so all of this takes place through God's powerful Messiah. And Zechariah fully expects that. And he centers his hope on this individual, Mary's son, the Messiah. And now he turns from praise to God for the Messiah to his own son and the role that his son will play in God's coming deliverance. So we've got two people crucial for God's coming deliverance. The first one is a powerful and promised Messiah. And the second one, his son, is a prophetic and preparatory messenger. Verses 76 through 79. This deliverance that God is bringing through his visitation will be both political, have political results, but the timing of it is not going to be the way that most Jews imagine during this time period. And so this deliverance is going to be announced. The people are going to be prepared through Zechariah's son, John. He's going to play a key role in this. Look at verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Listen to how Jesus talked about John the Baptist and his importance later on in the book of Luke. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written... As we read this morning, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And so God's deliverance comes through the preparation of John the Baptist. And Jesus says passages, or he says things like this because of passages like what we read this morning in Isaiah chapter 40. This deliverer, or this one that will prepare, will come before Messiah, before the Lord. Malachi 3 says the same thing. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So what's, God, what's John going to do to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord? How's he going to prepare them for deliverance? Is he going to organize a political party? Is he going to gather together soldiers to resist Roman occupation? Not exactly. Look at verse 77. 
Here's what he's going to do. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so John's ministry is going to answer the question we asked earlier. What sort of redemption will this be? I mean, what exactly is going to happen here? It will be a redemption from the dominion of sin through forgiveness of sin. And so Zechariah, I think, understands that John's ministry is going to be preparation for the arrival of the new covenant. We've talked about all of these promises in the Old Testament, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, you know, all of those. And then we came to the last one in the Old Testament, the new covenant, where God promises certain things to his people. And Zechariah says, yes, that covenant, that last one that the prophets predicted, that's going to happen. And my son is going to prepare the nation to receive that. Let me remind you again of what was promised in the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. How can all of this happen? How can they have a change of heart like this? It happens, according to the last phrase of this, through forgiveness of sin. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This entire covenant is built on the work of forgiveness of sins. The transformation of the heart only happens through the forgiveness of sins and then the knowledge that my sins have been forgiven. When you know that your sins have been wiped away and the penalty has been paid for them and you have been forgiven for them, then it fundamentally changes your heart and transforms who you are. And that's the promise of the new covenant. What was the problem that Israel faced throughout the Old Testament? Over and over again, it was their own sin. All of their political problems, all of their oppression from enemies happened because their hearts were corrupt. It was because God said to them in Deuteronomy, obey me, keep my commandments follow my law, and they just couldn't do it. They didn't have the heart to obey. They had a heart of stone and not a heart of flesh. And so over and over again in the wilderness, and then as they come into the promised land in the book of Judges, and then under the the reign of the Davidic kings, even the kings themselves, over and over again, the people go back to idolatry. Eventually, it comes to the point where they are exiled from the land that God had promised them. The problem was their sinful idolatry, their own twisted hearts. And so they couldn't be delivered from their political enemies 
because their own hearts were sinful. They had to be freed from their sinful idolatry and then they could be delivered from their political enemies. And so John's ministry was to prepare them to receive that forgiveness of sins. And they were to receive it through repentance and faith. And this message of forgiveness that John begins to proclaim here Forgiveness through repentance and faith, this message of the gospel, this is what has been proclaimed in us and throughout the world. This is what is talked about in the book of Acts. This message begun here, fleshed out in the the ministry of our Lord and his death and resurrection, and then spoken of by Peter and Paul, continuing on to this day. Let me show you a couple of examples. Acts 2. And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and new covenant promise, forgiveness of sins. And then Paul says, I go to the Gentiles all the way to Rome and beyond. And this is what I say, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And this forgiveness is according to God's mercy and it will happen, it will come as John prepares the nation and then as the one who comes after John comes and does his work. Look at verse 78. Forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Notice that language of visiting us again. This is the same word and the same language that we saw back up in verse 68. Look back up there. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This visitation brackets this entire song here. This time, though, the visitation is described as a sunrise. Why? Why does he say the sunrise shall visit us from on high? Our family recently has been watching this survival show um, on, on TV, and my kids are totally into it, and I am as well. And what this survival show is, is it's this thing where they, they drop off 10 guys on this remote island, and they each have uh, some assortment of items that they've chosen, and they just drop them off, and whoever survives the longest and makes it the longest wins a whole bunch of money. And so it's really an interesting show to watch and the dynamics of it and all of that. But as we're watching it, it's this Vancouver Island where they are off the coast of Canada. It's, you know, crazy weather and all that. And so there's this one part in the show where, I mean, these guys have been, I think they've been over a month out on this island trying to make it, you know, build a shelter, find food, all of that stuff. And it's really cold and it's really rainy and it's been like that for days. And it's just awful weather. And... The guys that are still there are are suffering physically and emotionally, and it's hard mentally, and it's, it's because of the darkness and because of the cold. 
And so there's this one night where they go to bed and it's really rough and it's dark and it's rainy and they wake up the next morning and the sky is clear and the sun is shining bright and it's an absolutely gorgeous day. And to see the difference in the guys from the night before to the day when the sun has broken through is, is almost shocking to watch. The reaction is astounding. It's in, in many ways, it's just a small difference, right? The sun is out, but it's massive for them and for their approach to the world. They are exuberant. I mean, it's almost hilarious. They go out and just stand in the sunlight and like put their arms up and just welcome the sunrise and the sunlight. They enjoy the light and the warmth and everything about them changes because of that sunrise, because of the sunlight. And that is a magnificent picture of the coming of Christ into a dark and a cold and a lost world. Look at verse 79. He comes to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's really a beautiful picture, right? You get get this image of people sitting in their camp at night, sitting, not moving because it's so dark and they're caught up in the way of death. And when the sun rises on them, now they can see because of the light and now they can go in their path. They can move forward. They know how to move forward because of the light. It's a caravan of travelers that get up to a bright sunrise and they're headed on their way. And where are they headed? Verse 79, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And of course, that word for peace is shalom. And we're going to get into that topic next week when we look at the song of the angel in Luke chapter 2. But what we see here is that through the ministry of these two men, John preparing the way for Christ, announcing the forgiveness of sins, and through the arrival of the sunrise, the Messiah who was promised, and through the forgiveness that he offers, light has dawned on the world, on the human race. We can now see how to approach life and how to move forward. The darkness has been exposed, and our sins can be forgiven through this powerful Messiah. And it's through these two babies that this message of mercy and grace has been initiated. And I hope and pray that that today and this season, you'll have the same reaction as Zechariah. Joy, worship, great rejoicing over what the Lord has done in visiting his people and ultimately in visiting us through the coming of, of these two men, the Messiah in particular. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that the sunrise has come. We don't sit in darkness any longer. And that really is the situation for so many people around the world. They sit in darkness. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to approach daily living. They don't know how to make sense of their sin, of the opportunity for forgiveness. But Lord, you have dawned. You have come. And we see that now through you. So bring us to great rejoicing. We thank you for the gift of forgiveness of sins, even as we'll celebrate now in taking the Lord's Supper. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.